It's Friday, July 29th, 2022, and you are listening to Tending the Garden Part 2 from Emily Stimson Chapman's monthly newsletter, Through a Glass Darkly. This is the second part of a two-part essay on God's plan for marriage. If you haven't read Part 1 or listened to Part 1, do that first. Now for Part 2. What do we do now? That's the question with which I ended the first part of this essay. What comes next? How can Christians live God's plan for marriage in the midst of a thousand cultural pressures to do otherwise? The answer doesn't start with programs and policies. Rather, it starts with the human heart and individual marriages. Every single one of us who is married or will marry someday can strive to bring our family life back into greater conformity with God's words to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Genesis 1.28. To do that, though, we have to be cautious. We have to first be wary of any tendency towards nostalgia in us, not overly romanticizing the marriages of a hundred or a thousand years ago, remembering that marriage is always work, that it always involves two broken people, and that every generation has its own struggles and opportunities. We also have to be on guard against reactionary tendencies in our heart. So much is wrong with how marriage is understood and lived in our culture today, that it's tempting to buy into a vision of marriage proposed by certain fundamentalists both inside and outside the church. This vision is sometimes called traditional marriage, capital T, capital M. But traditional marriage, capital T, capital M, is not Catholic marriage. The fundamental ingredients are the same. One man, one woman joined in lifelong union. But the traditional marriage movement is Protestant in origin, not Catholic and grounded in the Protestant doctrine of total depravity. Theologically, traditional marriage advocates hold that the grace of God isn't powerful enough to help man and woman transcend the consequences of original sin, inside or outside of marriage. As such, they see man's domination of woman as something to be enshrined, not left behind in the new covenant. Traditional marriage champions also reject the church's understanding of sexual complementarity and instead brace something called sexual polarity. What's the difference? Sexual complementarity holds that both man and woman are equal in dignity, fully human, a whole person, complete in themselves. They're different, but neither is lacking some essential quality of humanness. Man and woman possess their human nature with its capacity for reason, virtue, and love in equal measure. The differences in how they possess that nature, though, their masculinity and femininity, allow their union in marriage, friendship, and work to bear fruit that neither could bear on their own. In other words, the union of man and woman enriches the human experience. Sexual polarity, on the other hand, sees specific roles, gifts, and virtues as the exclusive purview of one sex. Man is strong, woman is weak. Man is active, woman is passive. Man is reasonable, woman is emotional. And thinks of the joining of man and woman in marriage as an act not of enrichment, but rather completion. 
each partner brings to the marriage what the other lacks. Often, though, that idea of completion is stressed more with the woman, who sexual polarity believers often see as weaker, not just in terms of physical strength, but also in intellect and key virtues, such as prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice. Practically speaking, this is why the traditional marriage movement deems the husband not simply the head of the family, but the boss of the family, using contractual language to describe the marital relationship instead of covenantal languages. Contracts involve the exchange of goods and services. Covenants involve the exchange of persons. Marriage, therefore, is a covenant, not a contract. This is also why it calls husbands not to serve their wives, as Christ did the church, but rather to rule their wives, controlling them, not partnering with them. Wives are to accept this control willingly, always deferring, always never deciding, always learning, never teaching, always following, never leading, always spending, never earning. As Catholics, however, we know that Genesis 1, not Genesis 3, is God's original plan for marriage. In the beginning, God entrusted to husbands and wives a shared mission, a shared work, a shared dominion. He also entrusted to them a shared dignity, creating Eve out of Adam's side to signify their fundamental equality as human beings and equal share in his divine image. Adam's first words to Eve were a recognition of this equality. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Genesis 2, 23. Now, in the new covenant, God has called us out of the cycle of domination and manipulation, making marriage a sign of the relationship between Christ and his church, and calling husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5, 25, 31 to 32. This is one reason why the church teaches quoting Moliardus Dignitatum 10, the matrimonial union requires respect for and a perfecting of the true personal subjectivity of both of them. The woman cannot become the object of domination and male possession, end quote. This is the kind of marriage to which Christians are called if they want to live God's plan for marriage and help renew the culture. But what does it look like? What does the church say are its hallmarks? It starts with a foundation of mutual trust and respect, where neither spouse seeks to dominate or manipulate. In his encyclical Humanae Vitae, Pope Paul VI describes married love as, quote, a love which is total, that very special form of personal friendship in which husband and wife generously share everything, allowing no unreasonable exceptions and not thinking solely of their own convenience, end quote. Nine. This love, he continues, must always be faithful, freely given, and involve the whole person, body and soul, reason and emotion. Quote, it is not then merely a question of natural instinct or emotional drive. It is also, and above all, an act of the free will, whose trust is such that it is meant not only to survive the joys and sorrows of daily life, but also to grow, so that husband and wife become, in a way, one heart and one soul, and together attain their fulfillment, end quote. In practice, this means husband and wife fully share their lives with each other. There is honesty between them. No secrets are kept, no lies are told, no resentments or fears are allowed to simmer in silence. There is no pretending, play acting, or obfuscating. They hold nothing of themselves back. They are with each other fully themselves, expressing gratitude and appreciation, 
it's experiencing delight in the other's successes and accomplishments, trusting the other's opinions, seeking to fulfill the other's desire. Second, the church teaches that Christian marriage is grounded in a recognition of man and woman's equal dignity and personal calling. Authentic, quote, authentic conjugal love presupposes and requires that a man have a profound respect for the equal dignity of his wife, exclaims Pope, explains Pope St. John Paul II in Familiaris Consortio. He then quotes St. Ambrose saying, you are not her master, but her husband. She was not given to you to be your slave, but your wife. On one level, living this teaching requires that neither spouse considers themselves superior to the other based on their sex. It calls each to see the other as the image of God. It also calls each to see the other as a unique person with strengths, gifts, and a vocation all their own. Neither husband nor wife can be summed up or defined purely by their sex. They aren't categories, they're persons. And how each uses their gifts and responds to God's call are questions for them to answer as a couple, together through prayerful discernment in light of church teaching and a well-formed conscience. Third, the church teaches that Christian marriage is to be fruitful, in body if possible, in spirit always. Openness to life, marked by respect for the female body's natural rhythms and trust in God's provision and plan, is part of marital fruitfulness. This love the church teaches is, quote, not confined wholly to the loving interchange of husband and wife, it also contrives to go beyond this to bring new life into being. Humani Vitae 9. At the same time, generosity, hospitality, Christian witness, and active concern for the little and the least are part of marital fruitfulness too. Not in a secondary way, but in a fundamental way. A way that recognizes God's call to spiritual fatherhood and spiritual motherhood is not some exclusive call to the consecrated nor a consolation prize for the infertile, but the unique task of every man and every woman, the reality to which physical parenthood points and in which it finds its fulfillment. Theology of the Body, 78.5. Fourth, Christian marriage calls couples to return to the home as much as possible and tend their garden, their family, together. The church teaches that it is wrong when economic necessity compels mothers to leave their young children for the workforce, and she urges the culture to find ways for mothers to not have to make that choice, including increasing opportunities for women to work from home. Familiaris Consortio 23. She also, however, teaches that fathers are needed in the home too. Quote, above all, where social and cultural conditions so easily encourage a father to be less concerned with his family or at any rate, less involved in the work of education, efforts must be made to restore socially the conviction that the place and task of the father in and for the family is of unique and irreplaceable importance. Familiaris Consortio 25. By this, the church doesn't mean that all mothers and all fathers must be present in the home 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Homesteading and homeschooling aren't new covenant requirements. But building a life together not apart, is. Working together, praying together, playing together, eating together, learning together, all that is essential. So too is finding ways to make the home places of production, not just consumption, and creating a family culture that is more about formation than entertainment. More presence in the home, more time in the home, more life in the home. 
is the aim. Last but not least, the church teaches that Christian marriage should seek holiness before all else. The holiness of the spouses, the holiness of the children, the holiness of society. Holiness comes first. Not stability, not security, not wealth, not professional accomplishment or academic achievement, not rest or comfort or the good opinions of others, but holiness, which is love of Christ, love of his law, love of his will, love of his church. Holiness is love, plain and simple. This is the family's greatest vocation. Quote, the family has the mission to guard, reveal, and communicate love, and this is a living reflection of and a real sharing in God's love for humanity and the love of Christ for the Lord, for the church, his bride. Familiaris Consortio 17. Those are the objectives. Those are the priorities. But how each family pursues those objectives and priorities, that's going to look different, sometimes radically different from couple to couple, family to family, and even generation to generation, as couples creatively figure out how to live church teaching in the midst of their own time, place, and economic reality. It's also going to look different as couples do the hard work of thinking through the church's teachings together, through their own preconceptions of marriage and their own strengths. Different spouses bring different expectations, desires, and experiences to their marriage. We are not always in the same emotional or spiritual place as the person we love. We're not always prepared to make the same sacrifices at the same time. Navigating marriage as we wrestle with these truths and ourselves is going to be challenging for everyone. And how we handle those challenges is another topic altogether well beyond the scope of this essay. But for now, it can help to remember that there is no one template for what the ideal Christian family looks like. There are right principles to follow, and there are right priorities to have, but there is no one right way to incarnate those principles and priorities. Some structures and forms and choices might be better for most, but not for all. Either way, structures don't save us. Only Jesus does that. He is the key. If you have been reading these newsletters for the past year, you know, the one theme I come back to again and again is Christian freedom. Both Christ and his bride have entrusted us with a shocking amount of freedom. More freedom than I suspect most of us would have granted anyone if we were in charge. This is especially true for marriage. In marriage, there is more freedom than law. So, how we navigate fruitfulness, stewardship, and share dominion. How we balance work and home, how we form our children, work with our children, and play with our children, none of this is dictated by Jesus or the church. They do not micromanage us. They give us clear but broad parameters, and then, as we've discussed, expect us as couples to thoughtfully and prayerfully discern how we will live within those parameters. Your discernment, however, can only be as good as your relationship with Christ. How well you know him, how much you depend upon him, how deeply you understand his teachings, how often you go to him, how clearly you recognize his voice, how deftly you exercise the reason he has given you, how intimately you let his healing graces touch you. This is what will make your discernment fruitful. Nearly 100 years ago, my great-grandparents' marriages fell apart without that grace. 
They did not let Christ into the deepest recesses of their hearts. They did not let him touch the most raw, bloody, broken parts of their souls. My ancestors got some things right. They all looked for a time like the picture-perfect Catholic families so many on social media try to emulate today. But that perfection was just an illusion. And even the illusion couldn't last long. Because they got the most important thing wrong. Some of them probably needed therapy too. In the end, if we want redemptive, transformative Christian marriages that bless our children and can be like leaven in this hurting world, then we need to let Christ in all the way in so he can lay his hands on the most broken parts of us. We need to let him heal the anxious parts, the scared and insecure parts, the impatient parts, the traumatized parts, the angry parts, the full of regret parts, the lustful parts, the proud and vain parts, the unreasonable parts. We can't block him like we block people online who challenge our worldview. We have to let Jesus speak to our brokenness, even when it makes us uncomfortable, even when it hurts, even when we really don't want to hear what he has to say. And again, we also need to go to therapy when it's needed. That is the only way we can build marriages that are grounded in respect for and recognition of each spouse's personal dignity, that are fruitful, that are a joy to live together, and that are witnesses to the love of Christ. Again, none of this is easy. None of this is simple. None of this can be accomplished without serious conversation, serious prayer, and serious sacrifice. And sometimes one person in a marriage can do all the right things and all the right work only to have the other spouse refuse to do the same. Each of us can only do the work we can do. Can't force anyone else to join us. But that doesn't make the work any less worth doing. Marriage is worth the work. You are worth the work. This was the July, 22, July 2022 essay from Emily Stinson Chapman's monthly newsletter, Through a Glass Darkly. For book recommendations related to today's topic and other content, please see the print version.